Brothers and sisters, I invite you to rise and to take from you a Bible, if you have one there in the front, for the reading of God's word. We will be in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Normally, when I preach, I, I would tend to come down in the middle, but as you can see, I'm, I'm kind of being obscured here, so I'll just stand here and we'll read together. Hear the word of the Lord, Revelation chapter 17, 1 through 8. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The word of God for the children of God. You may be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. It's a scene that sticks in your mind. Edmund, that rotten little boy who plays mean tricks and taunts his siblings, has stumbled across the threshold of the wardrobe and entered into the mysterious land of Narnia. As he walks a bit, he's suddenly startled by the rushing sound of a sleigh and animal hooves. After a few moments, he hears a loud shout, Halt! And before him is a chilling presence of the white witch. A boy, she exclaims. Are you the son of Adam, she asks. Edmund is frozen in place, and he doesn't speak. Answer me, she exclaims. And she asks him again, are you a human? Well, yes, your majesty, Edmund replies with a mumble. She goes on to ask him how he came to enter Narnia, and Edmund replies that he came through the wardrobe in the professor's house. As he continues to talk, the witch begins to seduce Edmund by inviting him onto her sleigh to get warm. She then offers him something warm to drink and something to eat. Warm and comfortable now, Edmund replies to her, I'll take Turkish delight, please. As C.S. Lewis describes the scene, he says that the witch's Turkish delight was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. 
But even more, he says that the Turkish delight was enchanted and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, even if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. But as this scene goes on, we realize that this exchange between the white witch and Edmund has little to do with Turkish delight. The witch is persistent to ask Edmund about his siblings, Peter, Susan, and Lucy. She tells Edmund that if he brings his siblings to her, she will make him the king of Narnia. Now we've uncovered the heart of Edmund's true desire. To be the king of Narnia, to have his siblings as subjects, to have all the power and to be worshipped, becomes the singular object of his desires, his motivations. Turkish delight was merely an hors d'oeuvre, something to whet his appetite before the main course. From this point on in the story, almost to the end, Edmund is secretly working for the white witch, quietly luring his siblings into her hands so that she will give him his reward. If you've read or you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's beloved Narnia series and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or you've seen the movie, then you know how the story ends. And I begin with Narnia, with this scene from Narnia, because I think that it helps illustrate what we see in St. John's Revelation. Narnia itself becomes a metaphor for John's apocalypse. As Lewis takes his readers beyond the threshold of the wardrobe into the land of Narnia, so St. John, in the spirit, takes his readers beyond the threshold of Patmos into the heavenly places. Make no mistake, entering into the heavenly space and no less into Narnia is not an escape from reality. Rather, it is a deeper penetration into the heart of it. As Lewis himself once pointed out, readers of children's books do not despise real woods because they have read of enchanted woods. Instead, their new way of seeing things makes all real woods a little enchanted. Revelation, then, like Narnia, helps us see and understand reality differently. It reorders our world and makes even the most ordinary and mundane things seem enhanced and enchanted with the heavenly presence. Our secular age wants to flatten and narrow reality into anything that can be proven by the scientific method. Don't be fooled by this. John is showing you, is showing us, that reality is far greater and deeper and wider than anything our reason can empirically measure or test or even fully comprehend. The more we realize this, the more we see ourselves in the light of John's vision, We understand that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been and is in an ongoing cosmic war with the forces of evil, sin, and death to rescue his good creation from their tightening grip. We understand that God himself in the incarnate flesh of Jesus Christ crossed the threshold of heaven, entering our world, our day-to-day reality, to land an execution blow against Satan as Christ was put to death on a cross and then gloriously resurrected to new life and ascended in power to the right hand of the Father. And what's more, we learn that the church, the saints, all of us sitting here this morning have been conscripted into God's army by our baptism, 
empowered by the Holy Spirit to act as fighting participants in the war against God's enemies. To mix stories a bit, Revelation shows us that Aslan is on the move, and he is inviting us, you and me, into his warfare, into his kingdom conquest. One of the key things Revelation shows us, and this is vitally important, is that worship is a weapon of our warfare. Worship is a weapon of our warfare. What does that mean exactly? What we worship, how we worship it, is the means that you and I have been given to fight in this cosmic war. Let me repeat that again. What you worship and how you worship it is the means that you've been given to fight in this cosmic war. The reason worship is weaponized, though, is that it has the force to either kill your enemy or to kill you. Let me explain. Throughout Revelation, we see the power of worship on full display. Think of the many hymns and doxologies exclaimed in praise and adoration around the throne of God and to the Lamb who alone is worthy to open the scrolls. Or by contrast, think of the instances in Revelation where we see the worship of idols and false gods. The reason worship is such a central theme in Revelation is because it has the power to transform us into the very likeness of the thing or person we're worshiping. For the saints, for all of us sitting here this morning, worship is the means we've been given to participate in God's fight against Satan. Because through rightful worship of the triune God, we are transformed by turns into greater Christlikeness. Likewise, false worship of false gods transforms us into that which is not God, the end of which is death. Remember Edmund in the Turkish delight. It became the object of his desire, his worship, and he could eat so much of it that it would ultimately kill him. That's the result of false worship. That's what we see in Revelation. Through worship, our desires, our loves are transformed, and either we come into greater humanness, and thus the fullness of life, or we are dehumanized and obliterated by the force of death. John wants you and I to enter into the depths of reality, of ultimate reality, in light of what, and in light of what you see, to ask yourself these questions. What do you love? What do you worship? What are you becoming? And finally, whose side are you on? The crucified lamb or the mocking beast? With these questions in mind, let's turn to Revelation 17 and see what new dimension of reality John is showing us. Revelation is structured much like a play into four parts or acts, each of which is marked by John being taken up in the spirit to a particular place. Here's how the structure works out. Act 1, starting in chapter 1, verse 9, ending in chapter 3, verse 22, the spirit takes John to Patmos. He's on Patmos. He begins to see the vision. In Act 2, which is the longest act of Revelation which begins in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 16, verse 21, the Spirit takes John into heaven. 
In Act 3, which is what we see in our text, chapter, beginning in chapter 17 through 21.8, John is taken by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then finally, Act 4, which begins in chapter 21, verse 9, through the remainder of the book, John is taken by the Spirit up to a mountain. Do you see the structure there? John is on land. He ascends to heaven. He descends to the wilderness and then ascends again to the mountain. Mimicking in many ways Christ, descent to earth, ascent to heaven. Descent in his second coming for us to be with him. After the long second act where we get the cycles of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, and so on, a new act begins in chapter 17, verse 3, when John is taken to the wilderness by the Spirit to see a wild spectacle. A woman dressed in fancy clothes and jewelry, getting drunk and riding on a beast. Probably not something you're going to see in a typical day in Wichita, Kansas, although maybe, maybe you will. What's going on? Our first tip should be the reentry of the beast, which we have not seen since chapter 13. In a literary sense, then, the beast acts as a bridge between chapters 13 and 17. Let me try to draw them together a little closer. In chapter 13, we see three characters, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. These three characters can be called what Michael Gorman says as the unholy trinity. The dragon, which is representative of Satan, who holds all the power and dispenses it to the other beasts, is a parody of God the Father. The sea beast, which represents Rome and the pagan empires of the world, is a parody of Christ the Son. The sea beast even says, even suffers a mortal wound, the text says, and then has it healed a kind of parody or a perverse form of the resurrection. The dragon gives all his power to the sea beast, and both are worshipped by the pagan peoples of the earth. Finally, the land beast, who represents either Roman Caesar or the Roman Caesars or the Roman emperor cult or all of them combined, is a parody of the Holy Spirit. The text says, that this beast even works great signs and makes fire come down from heaven in some kind of perverse Pentecost. Unlike the Holy Spirit who bears witness to Christ, the land beast deceives the people of the earth, leading them to take the mark of the beast, the mark of false worship. Understanding the way John is laying out reality, where Satan and the forces of evil are mimicking and thus mocking the triune God is important, for these same kinds of illusions and parodies are at play in chapter 17 and throughout Revelation as a whole. And again, that's why worship and the object of our worship is so important. It will either be directed to the one true God or a false parody. Either way, whether we know it or not, we are being transformed into its likeness. So John tells us, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. 
And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. From chapter 13, we have at least an initial understanding of who the beast is, but this passage instantly begs the question, who then is the harlot and what does her entry into this drama mean? Many scholars and commentators have been quick to say that the harlot of Babylon is yet one more representative of the Roman Empire, a political ruler or a pagan religious authority perhaps. And while that may be true, we shall see that another reading is more plausible, and not only more plausible, I believe more scriptural. For John, I want to suggest, the harlot of Babylon is representative of Jerusalem. Let's look more closely at a few things mentioned in this text to see how it lends support for this reading. Harlotry and fornication are not new identities for Israel. Go all the way back to Exodus 32, where Israel, like John presently, is in the wilderness. Yet Israel in the wilderness is worshiping what? A golden beast, an idol of her own making. Two chapters later in Exodus 34, Yahweh warns Israel through Moses not to be tempted by the false gods of their neighbors, lest they play the harlot after their gods and sacrifice to their gods. Or think of the prophet Hosea, who writes about the marriage covenant between Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh says to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. And arguably the longest reflection on Israel's idolatry and fornication is Ezekiel 16. In Ezekiel 16, you'll find this, but you trusted, God speaking to Israel, but you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your renown and lavished your harlotries on any passerby. You took some of your garments and made for yourself nicely decked shrines and on them played the harlot. The like has never been nor ever shall be. But there's more. John writes that the harlot was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a, a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. Just briefly, purple and scarlet, if you remember, are the dominant colors in the curtain of the tabernacle. In the tabernacle text of Exodus, purple and scarlet are named no less than 22 times in that text. As for the jewels, the most prominent image we have of that in Scripture is the breastplate of the high priest, which included threads of gold and inset precious stones. Interestingly enough, pearls, which, is, which are mentioned here in chapter 17, represent something different. For Israel, stones of the earth were used in priestly vestments, 
pearls, however, were representative of Gentiles because they were from the ocean. The harlot then represents in some sense a union between Jew and Gentile. Israel, Jerusalem, has been complicit, not in evangelizing the Gentiles as they were given their task in Exodus, but in colluding with them and their false gods. The harlot then represents in some sense a union between Jew and Gentile, and this serves as a parody, a mystery of the gospel which is for Jew and Gentile. On her forehead is written the name of mystery, John says. The high priest of Israel had a gold plate across his forehead that also had a name written on it, holy to Yahweh. So John is telling us that harlaters and beast worshipers wear other names where only the name of Yahweh should be. Well, what about the cup of impurity and abominations? These are words used, especially throughout the book of Leviticus, to mark boundaries between the holy and the profane, between God's space and human space. And God gave his people certain laws and regulations into how they were to enter into his space, not because he's a mean and cruel God, but because he loves his people and wants them to come and be with him, but wants to be worshipped according to his own holiness and righteousness. In Leviticus 10, priests are forbidden to drink in the tabernacle. But here we have the harlot, a false priestly figure, Jerusalem, getting drunk on human blood, no less, the gravest of abominations according to Torah. Think of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were drunk as they were being consumed by the unholy fire they brazenly offered to Yahweh. So the woman on the beast is none other than Jerusalem herself, once again playing the harlot after false gods. Cozying up to the beast, she is content to get drunk on the blood of the saints. Many of them fellow Jews who believed that Jesus was Israel's true Messiah. And if you didn't think that this was happening, all you have to do is go right back into the end of Acts chapter 8, beginning in chapter 9, and you see the Apostle Paul getting drunk on the blood of Christ's saints, reveling in their death until he was taken hold by life. Then we read, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. John, too, as an interesting aside, is taken captive by the sight of the great harlot. But then he is quickly rebuked by the angel. John, like Peter and the other apostles throughout the gospel, is not shy to write about his own sin for everyone to see. He continues, I, the angel, will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carry her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Remember chapter 13 where we see the three characters, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. In chapter 17, verse 3, we see only one beast, and we're given its color, scarlet. Before, 
Satan, the dragon, had been the power, the empowering force behind the beasts. Now in chapter 17, the beasts and the dragon have merged fully into one. And the beast, like the others in chapter 13, is a parody of the one true God. Satan and the powers have combined forces ultimately and are mocking and mimicking the one true God. In Revelation 4.8, we read this, one of the first doxologies, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to sing, passage from Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Do you hear the echo? Do you see how John is playing these dueling doxologies off one another? For the beast was and is not and is to come, while for the Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. We're right back to where we started, worship. And in Revelation 17, those whose names are not written in the book of life who marvel at, that is, worship the beast who was and is not and is to come are participants in its destructive dehumanization. Jerusalem, who had been given the means of to worship the one true God rightly, has forsaken her birthright and perverted her worship as she sits on and is transformed by the satanic beast. She is a false witness to a false counterfeit God. Now you may be asking, why is any of this important to John's seven churches? And for that matter, why is any of this important to me and us sitting here today? I certainly ask that question. Let me venture an answer. Besides the fact that John is naming the enemies of God who will ultimately be destroyed, John is subtly warning the seven churches not to play the harlot, not to be led astray, not to go the way of Jerusalem, who had been called out by God as his chosen people, but turned their back on God in false worship to false gods. Remember the questions. What do you love? What do you worship? What are you becoming? Whose side are you on? The crucified lamb or the scarlet beast? Brothers and sisters, let's bring this text a little closer to home. As I have read and studied John's revelation, as I have pondered and prayed through this book, I have been led to think that of the seven churches mentioned in the beginning chapters of Revelation, this church, Eastminster Church, most resembles the church of Laodicea. If you remember, Laodicea was the last church written to in John's revelation. And he tells them this very memorable line, that they are neither hot nor cold, they are lukewarm. Therefore, he will spit them out of, their, out of his mouth. They are rich, they have prospered, they want for nothing. Yet because of their material prosperity, they are blind, pitiable, poor, and naked. Friends, I have stood at the church of Laodicea 
Actually, it's the oldest church structure that archaeologists have been able to, to, to discover. And it sits right in the middle of a valley in Turkey, and about two miles in one direction is the Church of Colossae. The cold. There's a cold stream running right by the road. I stood, I stood in it. Went right up to my knees. Freezing cold. Two or three miles in the other direction is the Church of Hierapolis. It sat atop a hill, and there were hot springs. And the hot springs would come down from the mountain, and the cold springs would come around from Colossae, and they would both converge in the middle at the Church of Laodicea. And the water it created was murky, and it was bitter. You would spew it out of your mouth. Furthermore, they were known for for, for sheep and for the wool of the sheep because the sheep would drink the bitter water and it did something to the texture of their wool, made it softer and finer. And so they provided all the wool for all the Caesars and and the royalty of Rome to make garments for them, creating unbelievable amounts of wealth. So their location, their means, all of these things They thought, we can have all of this and worship God too. And God says, no, you can't. You've become lukewarm. Therefore, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. The church of Laodicea was captivated by the love of their own prosperity and self-sufficiency. They were worshiping a false god and were being transformed into its very likeness without even knowing it. It is true that Eastminster has been blessed with great wealth. And to its credit and by God's lavish grace, much of our history has been marked by giving generously to advancing the kingdom of God, both at home and around the world. Friends, God has given this church an incredible legacy of which we should be thankful and proud. But I sincerely believe that like the church of Laodicea, we have become blinded in many ways by our own self-sufficiency and lukewarm to the things of God. We have not taken an inventory of what we truly love, and we are slowly, slowly allowing our worship of material success, our expertise, our good reputation, our professionalization, our pragmatism, to transform us into a church that just might be bitter in the mouth of God. Financial responsibility and good stewardship are important. I certainly will not deny that, and neither does Scripture. But making the budget is not more important than making disciples of Jesus Christ. We can have great marketing, a fresh aesthetic, the newest and best technology, younger people, prettier people, charismatic leadership, entertaining worship, the best and greatest of everything. But if we are not deadly serious about speaking the hope of the gospel to our neighbors, if we are not serious about soaking ourselves in the word of God, if we are not serious about prayer and sacraments, the means of grace God has given us, if we are not serious about being discipled and discipling others, then why are any of us here? Why are you here? Friends, church is not a social club. The church is, as Calvin said, 
the school of Christ where we go to learn what to love. And as our lives are transformed into Christ-likeness through worship and adoration of the triune God. Friends, I know many of you have been thinking this for a long time. I have heard you. Our elders have heard you. Our staff has heard you. Here's the good news. As God says to Laodicea, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. So be zealous and repent. Repentance is about changing the cor- changing course and going a different direction than you were before. I truly believe Christ is calling us, all of us, the whole church, to a season of repentance, which starts with the questions I asked at the beginning. What do we love? What do we worship? What are we becoming? Whose side are we on? The crucified lamb or the scarlet beast? Start with the first question, but make it personal. Repentance, after all, begins with me and you. Do you love your schedule so much that you have been putting off discipling that person God placed in your life a few months ago? Do you love your work and money so much that you have allowed it to become the ultimate mark of your identity and well-being? Do you love your health or athleticism or good looks so much that when these things are taken from you or fade, you somehow think that God has abandoned you? Do you love your kids' sports teams or your travel schedule so much that you've convinced yourself that church, that being with God's people is optional to live a faithful Christian life? Do you love your pride and good reputation so much that you are unwilling to become a fool for Christ? Do you love the noise and rush and busyness of life so much that you have forgotten what it means to be still and to listen to the voice of God? Friends, Christ is calling us to love something greater than our momentary desires. He's calling us to love deeper communion with him and the joy, the unending, full joy of the triune life. That is the gospel. That is our story. Do you believe it? The hope of the gospel is clearly stated again at the end of John's letter to Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Growing up as a child, I heard that first, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it was always in reference to people who were unsaved, people who were not believers. Well, all it took was to go back into scripture to see that this is being written to actual believers not unbelievers. It's being written to the church. These are not words for people outside of these walls. These are words for us. Friends, God has not abandoned us. He is with us. He desires to eat with us and have fellowship with us. He wants to empower us for mission and to share in his victory over the powers of Satan, sin, and death. He has given us our identity in Christ and our mission in the kingdom. 
We have all we need. But we must get serious about the gospel and making disciples transformed in the likeness of Christ. Fellow soldiers who wage war against the powers of evil with fervent prayer, worship, and thanksgiving. Both individually and corporately, we must allow our loves to be reordered and our lives to be transformed by the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. As St. Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But if it is not truly Christ Jesus who we love, whom we worship, in whose likeness we are becoming, and if we are not always on the side of the crucified lamb, then we might as well see ourselves riding the scarlet beast or see ourselves as Edmund, foolishly eating Turkish delight, comfortable in the arms of the white witch. Christ is standing at the door knocking, wanting to transform our lives and enlarge our loves for himself and for his kingdom. The question is, friends, will we let him in? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.